this morning we started to explore some practices from the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, sometimes translated as categories of experience. And as I said this morning, this fourth foundation includes a lot of numbered lists, far too many to go into now. So for the purposes of our practice here, I wanted to highlight just a couple of these lists, the five hindrances that we were working with this morning, those various afflictive states of mind that get in the way of seeing clearly. And then the list of the seven factors of awakening, which are the beneficial qualities of mind that support clear seeing or insight. And as I mentioned this morning, there's a reciprocal relationship between these five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. To put it very simply, when the hindrances are present, then by definition, the awakening factors are absent. And vice versa, when the awakening factors are present, then the hindrances are absent. So I find it reassuring that there are only five hindrances and seven awakening factors. So the good guys outnumber the bad guys. And when we have the good fortune to spend time in supportive conditions on a retreat like this, a very natural shift occurs to the extent that we can settle into the simplicity and let go of our preferences and maintain noble silence and solitude then almost by itself, the mind starts to release the hindrances and strengthen the awakening factors. And even over these last four days, all of you have seen that transition happening to some extent. If you remember back to the first night, if you can remember that long ago, it might have felt that in the first night, the first days, it seemed like all you were dealing with were the hindrances. But a few days later, as we start to orient towards renunciation and non-busyness and solitude, something starts to shift. The samadhi becomes stronger. Wisdom and compassion come into play and insights arise. And sometimes I wish we had some kind of very refined MRI or X-ray machine that could take a snapshot of our minds at the start of the retreat so we could have a more objective sense of what state we were in at the start of the retreat compared to what we're in now. Because based on my individual meetings with each of you, it feels very different to me now compared to three days ago. And hopefully it does to you too. So in the absence of an MRI machine that can pick up that kind of information, uh, we just have to look for ourselves and get a sense of that shift over time. And of course, it's not really accurate to talk about states because as we all know, our minds aren't fixed. And it's a key insight to recognize just how changeable our physical and mental experiences are. Still, I can sense that all of us are, could point to a general decrease in the afflictive qualities and an increase in the skillful qualities. 
So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of these skillful qualities that start to emerge once the hindrances have begun to diminish. And these skillful qualities are the seven factors of awakening, also known as the seven enlightenment factors. And I'll give you the list of what they are in a moment because for some of you this might be new information. But I'm pretty confident that when you hear the list you'll realize that at least on some level these are all qualities that you've already been developing. So these are the seven. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, samadhi, and equanimity. And I'll come back to them in a little more detail later on, but before I go there, I'd like to talk more generally about their purpose on this path. These seven factors are called awakening factors or enlightenment factors because when all seven of them are strong and are in balance, they provide the optimum conditions for the deepest insights to arise, the kind of insights that lead to awakening, to freedom, enlightenment, nibbana or nirvana. And although nibbana is the whole goal, the whole purpose of insight practice, there are a lot of misconceptions about what terms such as nibbana or even insight are actually referring to. So even the word insight uh, can be confusing to people And insight is the usual English translation of the Pali word vipassana, which literally means clear seeing or seeing distinctly or separately, as I mentioned the other day. And as we enter into this practice, at first the insights that we have tend to be of a more personal or more psychological nature as we start to understand our own conditioning, our personal histories, our psychological habit patterns, and as we start to see through some of the ways that we get caught in identification with our experience, then as the practice progresses, we start to understand that everything we experience is impermanent, anicca, unsatisfactory, dukkha, and doesn't have any inherent unchanging essence to whom all this is happening, anatta or not-self. And as these insights strengthen, we're able to let go into deeper and deeper experiences of freedom. Whatever level we're practicing insight at, the purpose of insight is to reduce suffering. So in that regard, I appreciate the English Dharma teacher Rob Berbea's definition of insight in his book, Seeing That Freeze. He begins by defining insight quite loosely as any realization or understanding or way of seeing things that brings to any degree a dissolution of or a decrease in dukkha. So this is a very practical definition that gives us a way to understand whether something is a useful insight or not. Has it brought to any degree a decrease in dukkha, suffering, stress or distress? 
And it reminds us that the point of all of this hard work is to free the heart and mind from suffering. It's not about trying to have some kind of far out esoteric experience to impress our teachers or our friends or ourselves. Yet this is a very common misperception of what the practice is about. So when it comes to words such as awakening or enlightenment or liberation, to many ears these words can sound quite abstract or exotic or perhaps even meaningless. There might be for some people a vague idea of getting there or getting it at some point in the far distant future. But right here and now, Nibbana doesn't sound very relevant or appealing. For other people, there might be some sense that Nibbana is pointing to freedom from suffering, but there's an unconscious or conscious belief that it's going to be necessary to spend decades battling with the hindrances and the defilements and the afflictive energies before we experience anything remotely like freedom. So we can have this unconscious belief that Nibbana is some lofty goal that might be available to um, mythical beings sitting in a cave in the Himalayas somewhere, but it's really not that relevant to us. So I want to emphasize again the point that I made in my first talk on Dukkha, that one very practical and accessible definition of Nibbana is as the heart-mind free from greed, free from hatred, free from ignorance. In other words, free from the three root poisons or defilements. And with this definition of Nibbana, it is something that we can experience for ourselves, at least in moments, whenever the heart and mind are temporarily free of afflictive states. And at first, these moments might be few and far between, very fleeting and perhaps just lasting nanoseconds. But as we learn to recognize them and to strengthen them, they start to become more and more the default setting of the mind. So remembering the quote that I gave from Ajahn Buddha Dasa a few nights ago, this is the process of converting temporary Nibbana into complete Nibbana. So from this perspective, Nibbana is not a big bang experience where we experience some kind of sudden and radical transformation into a state of permanent bliss. It's not a static state that we get. It's a process that all of us are going through. That's why I prefer the term awakening to enlightenment because enlightenment is a noun and it sounds that it suggests that nibbana is a state, something that we get. Whereas awakening is a verb. So it's an action that happens, a process. A process of letting go of the hindrances and strengthening the skillful qualities of the awakening factors. So Bhikkhu Analio, the German scholar that I've scholar and practitioner that I've referred to a few times. He wrote his PhD on the Satipatthana Sutta. And he makes the point that all of the practices within the four foundations of mindfulness, all of them are aimed at developing the seven factors of awakening. They're all different ways of preparing the mind for these awakening factors to arise. <clears throat> 
And there are a couple of quotes from the suttas that really highlight the importance of developing these awakening factors. The first one says, practitioners, the seven factors of enlightenment when developed and cultivated are noble and freeing. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. So that might sound quite inspiring that all of the practices we're doing here are noble and freeing, freeing us from suffering. So we could think of that as the carrot approach. There's another sutta that has more of the stick approach. It's quite an earthy sutta. It says, a certain practitioner approached the Buddha and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, an unwise dolt, an unwise dolt, in what way, venerable sir, is one called an unwise dolt? And dolt is an old-fashioned word for a stupid person or a fool. And the Buddha replied, It is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of awakening that one is called an unwise dolt. So if we want to avoid being unwise dolts, we need to know, to recognize, when are these awakening factors present? We need to get familiar with them and learn how they feel in the heart and the mind. And even though we might not yet know these factors in detail, it can still be helpful from time to time to just silently run through the list of the seven and to notice are they present or not. So we could even give that a try right now as you're sitting here and I run through the list of them again you might just notice if there's a sense of recognition with some of them or for others perhaps more a sense of absence or confusion. That's fine, just notice whatever response there might be. So the first one, mindfulness. Is mindfulness present right now or not? And as soon as we ask the question, the answer is always going to be yes, because just by asking the question, we've already re-established mindfulness. So that's a pretty easy win. And then the second factor, investigation. Is there interest and curiosity about my experience right now? And again, just by asking the question, the question itself is a form of investigation. So we've already got two. And then the third factor, energy. How's the energy right now? Is there an alertness and interest? Or is there a little more dullness and sinking into sloth and torpor? If balanced energy is present right now, what does that feel like? Then the fourth factor, joy, sometimes translated as rapture or rapt interest. Is there any trace of joy present right now? This quality of appreciation or delight or engaged interest. Then the fifth factor, tranquility, deep calmness. Is there any tranquility present right now? 
And then the sixth factor, samadhi, non-distractibility, is the mind focused and stable, undistracted or not. And then lastly, equanimity. Is there some evenness of heart and mind, some balance, acceptance, ease? A heart-mind that's not pulled into wanting or pushed back into not wanting. So that's just a very brief initial overview of these seven factors. And when we run through the checklist like that, we might find that perhaps only one or two are present, or the others that are present might feel quite weak or indistinct. But even this is useful information because the first step in cultivating these factors is learning to recognize how they feel in the body and the heart and the mind. And when these factors are present in balance, they help us to see clearly and to penetrate more and more deeply into the truth. And in the suttas it's said that just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean, So the awakening factors incline and flow towards freedom. And this analogy suggests that it's a natural process, that there's a natural flow of development with these factors. And at times we do experience them as a kind of a positive chain reaction. There's no need for an act of will. The wholesome states gain some kind of momentum and they just seem to flow naturally one into the other. But we do need to make some initial effort though to get the whole process started. So that's why mindfulness is the first of these seven factors. First we need to know what's happening, what's going on in the heart-mind, to know if the hindrances are present or not. And if they are, sometimes just being able to know them helps them to release then once the hindrances have lost their grip, there's, we're in a better position for the awakening factors to come up. So mindfulness is the foundation that gets this whole process going. And what makes mindfulness into an awakening factor as opposed to just an ordinary quality of presence is, as I said the other day, that it's unremitting. It's unremitting, continuous. And that's why I've been putting so much emphasis on mindfulness of our in-betweenings, doing our best to maintain this mindfulness throughout the day, from the moment that we wake up in the morning until we go to sleep at night, through the formal meditation sessions as well as in the uh, daily life activities. And I've... A few years ago, I heard that meditators on longer retreats are able to practice this continuity of mindfulness to such an extent that they can know whether they fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath and whether they wake up on an in-breath or an out-breath. So that might be something to to play with. So this continuity of mindfulness, one analogy is like, uh, it's like boiling a pot of water. If we turn on the gas flame for a couple of seconds and then 
walk away and do some stuff and then come back half an hour later and give it another blast for a couple of minutes and then turn it off and go away, come back. It takes forever for the pot of water to boil. But if we just put it on a slow, steady flame, then before too long, it starts to cook, to simmer. So this continuity of mindfulness is also protection from the mind being invaded by the hindrances. And mindfulness here is supported by the second factor, which is investigation. Investigation of dhammas to give it its full title, which means, as I said, dhammas is one of these words that has a range of different meanings. So it can mean phenomena, all the ways we experience the world. And it also refers to the Buddha's teachings. So with this factor, we're investigating our experience in accordance with the teachings, knowing the nature of all experiences, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, as I mentioned earlier. So investigation also refers to the wisdom of knowing whether something is wholesome or unwholesome, whether it's leading to progress on the path or moving in the opposite direction. So one way we might practice this factor of investigation very simply is by using the three questions that I uh, offered in the last couple of days. What's happening in the body? What's happening in the heart-mind? How am I relating to this experience? Just dropping those questions in from time to time is a way of strengthening this quality of investigation. So investigation also helps to bring up more energy in the system. So it's a powerful antidote to sloth and torpor. So that's why in uh, one of the group question sessions, I suggested if there's boredom, see if we can get interested in boredom by investigating it. What is this quality that I'm calling boredom? How do I know that I'm bored? And just in the asking of the question, more energy comes into the system. And this is the third factor of awakening, energy or virya. And the other night when I spoke about right effort, I spent quite a bit of time talking about the need for balance in the amount of energy or effort that we're bringing to the practice. So again, in the context of the awakening factors, what we're looking for here is a very stable, sustained kind of energy there's continuity to it. And in the discourses, it's described as unshakable. And although at first we do need to put in some effort to get the momentum going, as the energy factor develops, it becomes more and more effortless. At times it can feel like we're surfing a wave and it feels as if the momentum of the meditation practice is just carrying us and we don't have to put in quite as much effort anymore. All we have to do is keep paying attention. And when the practice develops this kind of momentum, this kind of effortless effort, there's a sense of joy that comes up again very naturally. So this is the awakening factor of joy or piti is the Pali word. Piti is sometimes translated as rapture or bliss or rapt 
interest. The joy that's referred to here, though, isn't the kind of happiness that comes from, say, sense pleasures. It's a more refined mental type of happiness. And because it's a mental happiness, it's much more sustainable than ordinary sense-based happiness, kind of happiness that might come from eating pavlova, for example. Most of us could probably eat one or maybe two bowls of pavlova before we start to feel a little bit sick. But when joy is present as an awakening factor, it can be sustained for many hours, in some cases even days, without much effort. And as this type of joy steadies and stabilizes, it gives way to tranquility, which is the next awakening factor. Tranquility is a profound calmness of body and mind. So it's a direct antidote to the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And because it is a refined and subtle state, for some people at first it might take a bit of getting used to. Because our outside lives generally are so hyper-stimulated and so agitated, sometimes when we touch into this kind of calmness, it might seem as if not a lot's going on and we might even feel a bit spacey or confused or lost. And again, because our default conditioning in our outside lives is often the opposite of tranquil, I've noticed for myself quite often that when I'm preparing talks on these seven factors, tranquility seems to be the one that I forget the most often. And you might notice something similar in your own practice if you choose from time to time to run through this list of seven. You might find that quite consistently you forget one of the seven. And usually it's the one you struggle to remember that's the one that needs the most strengthening So just that can be useful information. So tranquility is this quality of profound stillness and calm. And it leads naturally into samadhi, the next factor of awakening. I've been trying to not use the usual translation of concentration for samadhi too much. Because in English, this word concentration has connotations of sort of furrowed brow focusing or even fixating on something and it often implies a kind of a forced willful effort which is actually the opposite of what this is required to develop samadhi so a more accurate translation might be indistractability or one-pointedness of mind a stable unscattered attention Sometimes samadhi is translated as absorption in the sense of the mind naturally being absorbed in the meditation object and the attention not moving anywhere. Most of you uh, with this practice of renunciation and simplicity and letting go of preferences and non-involvement, even on this retreat you've had at least a little bit of a taste of samadhi And you might have some sense of what a relief that is. Precisely because in daily life we're so bombarded by sense contacts and stimulated by all these different 
sights and sounds and tastes and smells and physical sensations and thoughts and emotions and moods and mind states, we often don't even realize the impact of all that until they're released as they are on retreat. And then we realize just how overstimulated our nervous system has been. And conversely, what a relief it is to be able to touch into samadhi and refresh our whole systems, our whole being. So samadhi is often experienced as very refreshing for the nervous system. And then from that samadhi, the final awakening factor of equanimity can arise. And as I said earlier, this is the quality of mind that's completely accepting. It's not wanting anything. It's not resisting anything. It's just at rest, aware and poised. And it's a very refined state of mind. So even the more subtle vibrations of energy and joy aren't there anymore. And so it can be sustained for even longer than the previous qualities. So the mind that's resting in equanimity, it's not a state of disconnection as people sometimes misunderstanding, misunderstand. There's a full awareness of what's happening. There's an alertness, an aliveness but it's in this state of non-reactivity that allows for the deepest insights to arise. So that's a very brief overview of each of these seven factors. And I'd like to speak a little more generally now about some of the challenges that can come up when we are beginning to experience more of these wholesome qualities. So as I've been emphasizing, after the mind has been secluded for some time, the hindrances begin to weaken. They might even disappear altogether. And at first, this can be a little bit disconcerting because if you remember the image of Sisyphus and the boulder pushing these things uphill, we're so used to, addicted to wrestling with the sense desires and the aversions and the sloth and torpor and the restlessness and the worry and the doubt and everything, Of course, these are unpleasant, but at least they give us something to do. So then when the hindrances start to lessen, it can feel like there's nothing happening. And the momentum, uh, and one symptom of this, when it feels like there's nothing happening, is that we can get very caught in feeling like we can't really say what we're experiencing anymore because we're not in those gross struggles with the difficulties. There's more uh, refined mind states, but sometimes the mindfulness isn't refined enough to meet these more subtle experiences. And in that gap, we can feel like we don't quite know what's going on anymore. So at these times, we might need to just, from time to time, make a mental note, oh, not knowing, or unsure, or vague, or indistinct, or whatever it is, because even that is helping us stay present with the experience. And then as we start to get used to these quieter, more refined states, our mindfulness becomes sharper, and then we're able to see more clearly what's actually going on.
A second thing we might notice as we move into these more refined states is that when we're relatively free of the hindrances, we might notice how often actually we're somewhat addicted to the highs and lows of life, to the drama of the practice, and that often we're secretly searching for catharsis of some kind or craving intensity or perhaps even afraid of a more balanced and subtle and nuanced range of experiences. So sometimes when the practice does settle into a quieter phase, we might try to get some of that familiar intensity back by pushing or forcing or striving and trying to make something happen. And again, I've been talking a lot about how our mainstream conditioning is all about doing and getting and having and attaining. So of course, we're going to bring some of that to our meditation practice, wanting to get results and make things happen. So part of the art of the practice at this stage is training ourselves to recognize, get used to how it feels to have a mind without greed or wanting, without aversion or not wanting, without delusion or ignorance. So when we're in these states or spaces where there's an absence of the hindrances, some teachers refer to this as a a cycle of purity, of the mind becoming calm and clear and more like the uh, translucent diamond that I referred to earlier. And if you've been in this state of purity where all of a sudden there's a sense of ease and openness and perhaps even a few moments of bliss, it's very common to think, yes, now I've got it. This is how the rest of the retreat is going to be. Mm, Sounds like some of you might know that. (laughs) And you know what happens next. Sometimes in the very next sitting, we go from the best sitting of our lives to the worst sitting. But this is actually understood, recognized as a very common dynamic. And so for me, it was a relief to hear one teacher talk about these cycles of purity and purification. So the purification phase of the cycle is a kind of uh, euphemism for that phase when all of our stuff starts to come up again. And this actually has happened because of the purity phase. So when there's purity, it's like the part of the psyche, part of the defense structures let go into this open and openness and bliss and refreshment of the nervous system. And it's because of that sometimes that the next level of detritus or junk can start to percolate up for us to see it, to see it, to not identify with it, to allow it to release. And that allows the next cycle of purity to happen. When we first come into this terrain, the swings between purity and purification can feel extreme. But the key is rather than holding on 
as we move from one to the other, it's to make space to just allow that process to come and go and to recognize that it's an expected, natural, normal part of the practice. And it's not that we're supposed to try and cling on to the purity and then fight the purification, but just allow this natural momentum of the practice. And with time, the pendulum swings don't feel quite as dramatic. So in this initial phase of uh, these cycles, it, it definitely can feel quite uncomfortable. And sometimes it's almost like being an adolescent again, going through puberty. We're kind of in this transition phase where we're not quite fully into the next phase of the practice, but we're trying to get used to our newly adult bodies and hearts and minds. Or perhaps a more poetic image might be the metamorphosis of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. And as I think you know, when a butterfly first emerges, its wings are very soft and it needs to take some time to allow the wings to dry out and harden before it can fly. So when we encounter these phases, perhaps of feeling more shaky or groundless or uh, transition, the discomfort of transmission, of transition, this is where we need to bring in compassion again this other wing of awakening to support ourselves with immense patience and kindness and trust that the practice is unfolding quite naturally. So a couple of years ago I read that in the Tibetan tradition, in Tibetan language the word that's usually translated as meditation literally means getting used to it. And I felt that was very, uh, I'm not sure exactly how Tibetans might um, interpret that, but I felt like, well, getting used to it is actually what we're doing on many different levels. Getting used to this new terrain. And we can even think of our, this inner journey that we're going on as being a kind of exploration of different terrains. So sometimes we're walking through the bush and it's very beautiful and pleasant. Other times we're scrambling up a cliff face. Other times we might be struggling through a swamp or walking along a beach or traversing a snowy slope with snowshoes. And in all these different terrains, it takes a little while to get used to whatever the particular terrain is. We need to learn that when we're on the beach, we don't need our snowshoes. And we need to learn how to walk through a swamp as compared to in the bush here. So all of these are ways that we need to learn how to get used to whatever our experience is. And even though these awakening factors are presented uh, as a set of discrete qualities. It's not that we work through them one by one, mindfulness, tick, yes, investigation, tick, yes. As we enter into the terrain of the awakening factors, the amount of involvement that's required here is very, very subtle. And if we're approaching these awakening factors of 
with an attitude of things that we've got to get or to have, that level of striving is going to interfere with our natural development. So at this stage of the practice, it's really about getting out of the way and trusting that our practice is unfolding exactly as it should. And I know from speaking with you in the meetings that all of you have been experiencing at least a few of these awakening factors, perhaps for just a few minutes at a time, but, and they might not yet be particularly strong or stable, perhaps just little buds, as Bhikkhu Analio likes to say. But these buds have the potential to open into flowers and flowers, in turn, have the potential to bear great fruit. So I hope that this overview of the awakening factors might give you some sense of possibility, some inspiration for where all of this practice is leading. And I'd like to close with one more passage from the suttas that's attributed to the Buddha. And as you're listening, you might like to imagine that the Buddha is speaking very directly to you, because in a way, he is. So see if you can take in these words. He's reported to have said, Abandon what is unskillful, practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible to abandon what's unskillful, I say to you, abandon it. If this abandoning of what's unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what's unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what's unskillful. Develop what is skillful, practitioners. It is possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible to develop what is skillful, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because it is possible to develop what is skillful, I say to you, develop what is skillful. If this development of what is skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. So may our efforts on this retreat help us to develop what is conducive to benefit (coughs) and pleasure so that we might experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind, the complete destruction of suffering. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. <coughs> 